All right, besides uh, middle school being dismissed, we do have the Sunday school classes going. And uh, just to give you an update, we didn't tell Brittany this, but they'd have midweek services. So uh, in, in the building here. So I think you need to be aware of that and ministry leaders will contact you on how to get involved uh, this coming week. I'm gonna have us, um, I'm gonna read some scripture here before I preach on this text. Probably one of the most challenging texts that I've looked at for a long time. And I'm going to read from the message, which is Eugene Peterson's translation of uh, the Bible. And so he's trying to, what he's trying to do is bring it in a contemporary vernacular, bring it in language that you and I would relate to and connect with. And I'll, we'll be looking at it. I'll be preaching from the NIV, but let's take a look at what he says here. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in front of you there. He said, but there were also lying prophets among the people then, just as there will be lying religious teachers among you. They'll smuggle in destructive divisions, pitting you against each other, biting the hand of the one who gave them a chance to have their lives back. They put themselves on a fast downhill slide to destruction, but not before they recruit a crowd of mixed up followers who can't tell right from wrong. They give the way of truth a bad name, they're only out for themselves. They'll say anything, anything that sounds good to exploit you. They won't, of course, get by with it. They'll come to a bad end, for God has never just stood by and let that kind of thing go on. God didn't let the rebel angels off the hook, but jailed them in hell till judgment day. Neither did he let the ancient ungodly world off. He wiped it out with a flood, rescuing only eight people. Noah, the sole voice of righteousness, was one of them. God decreed destruction for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mount of Ash was all that was left. Grim warning to anyone bent on an ungodly life. But that good man Lot, driven nearly out of his mind by the sexual filth and perversity, was rescued. Surrounded by moral rot day and night, that righteous man was in constant torment. So God knows how to rescue the godly from evil trials. And he knows how to hold the feet of the wicked to the fire until judgment day. God is especially incensed against these teachers who live by lust, addicted to filthy existence. They despise interference from true authority, preferring to indulge in self-rule. Insolent egotists, they don't hesitate to speak evil against the most splendid of creatures. Even angels, their superiors in every way, wouldn't think of throwing their weight around like that, trying to slander others before God. These people, have nothing, these people are nothing but brute beasts, born in the wild, predators on the prowl, in the very act of bringing down others with their ignorant blasphemies, they themselves will be brought down, losers in the end. Their evil will boomerang on them. They'll, they're so despicable and addicted to pleasure that they indulge in wild parties, carousing in broad daylight. They're obsessed with adultery, compulsive in sin, seducing every vulnerable soul they come upon. Their speciality is greed and they're experts at it, dead souls. They've left the main road and are directionless, having taken the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, the prophet who turned profiteer, a connoisseur of evil. But Balaam was stopped in his wayward tracks. A dumb animal spoke in a human voice and prevented the prophet's craziness. There's nothing to these people. They're dried up fountains, storm-scattered clouds, headed for a black hole in hell. They're loud mouths full of hot air, but they're still dangerous. Men and women who have recently escaped from a deviant life are most susceptible to their brand of seduction. They promise these newcomers freedoms, but they themselves are slave of corruption. For if they're addicted to corruption, and they are, they're enslaved. 
If they've escaped from the slum of sin by experiencing our master and savior, Jesus Christ, then slide back into that same old life again. Then they're worse than if they had never left. Better not to have started out on the straight road to God than to start out and then turn back. Repudiating the experience and the holy command, they prove the point of the Proverbs. A dog goes back to its own vomit and a scrubbed up pig heads for the mud. Pretty intense words from uh, Peter's writing. So I'm going to have a stand uh, this morning and we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And I, I recognize that we're living in uh, a challenging moment in our community and many of you in your lives and decisions are being rendered and we're getting all kinds of information and uh, it's pitted uh, believers against each other. It's pitting uh, people in the community against each other. What's the answer to our problem? Well, obviously, we know it's found in Jesus Christ. It's found in putting our trust in him, looking to him and hearing what he has to say. And so I'm going to ask that God would really open our hearts. And because, you know, as I've been exploring uh, the the letters of Peter, uh, there's been a reason for it. Peter is really trying to explain to us the way of the Lord. And I think we need to hear what he has to say. And at this point, we're going to hear a little bit about... uh, people who teach the wrong way and how destructive it really is and the, the damage that it creates in people's lives. And so, Father, I come to you today and I recognize that we're standing in a very challenging moment of time. And many times we find ourselves maybe even guilty of saying things that we hear from others that we may not know the full scope of it. We may not know the full extent of the stories. And there's so much information We're overloaded with information. It's created confusion, frustration, hurt, anger, divisiveness. Lord, we know that this wisdom doesn't come from above. It comes from below. It's creating disorder in every evil work. We know that there's a wisdom that comes from above that is gentle and pure. And Lord, I just pray today, it doesn't show partiality. It's not impartial. Lord, I pray today that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, help us to hear your word, help us to hear both the words of warning and the words of encouragement. Lord, may we heed them, may we embrace them, may we obey them, may we respond to them. Father, may we leave this place with hope. Lord, may we leave this place with a quiet confidence that you're in charge of our world, that you're in charge of our homes and our lives, Father. And I pray, Father, that we, Lord, would... uh, Just begin to seek your face at a level maybe we haven't in a long time. Maybe we seek your words and understand your ways in in a way that maybe we've not ever done before. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, so often when you're trying to put a message together, you're trying to think of a title. I call this one Alien Invasion because the ideas that Peter's going to refute are kind of alien to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But uh, I phoned someone the other day and I said, you know, I could easily call this sermon the fast track to hell Uh, because it really is. I mean, if we end up believing the wrong things, it can cause great grief in our life. And so it's important that we know what the truth has to say. I'm going to raise a number of questions today, and the first one I want to start with is, how can we live right in a world that's gone wrong? Isn't that a great question? How do we know what's the right thing? You know, today we strive to feel good. I mean, this culture today has moved away from, you know, rationalism to experientialism. We, we want to experience things. We're very caught up on emotion. 
And it's not that God's against emotion. I believe that's a gift that God's given to each one of us. God's emotional. But God's emotion is also constrained by what he, who he is and what he's like and his very consistent with his character. And so his emotions are framed within his character. And so you and I need to develop our emotions in the framework of who God is, especially as Christians. You know, the proper sequence to emotion, though, uh, and the idea of feeling good is if you, uh, if you be good, then you will do good, and then you will feel good. Isn't that interesting? So it starts out with character. It starts out with who we are, and from who we are lends itself to what we begin to do. And when we do the right things, ultimately, we always feel good about it. How many have discovered that? And when we, when we don't think the right things and we're frustrated and many times we respond in a wrong way and we end up doing the wrong things, in the end we feel terrible about it. How many have had that experience? You know, afterwards, looking back, you go, wow, I, I was, just did the wrong thing there and I feel bad about it. So it comes back down to having the right sequence or the right order to, you know, be good, do good, and then you will feel good. It's interesting, a uh, philosophy professor by the name of Dallas Willard, he's wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. He said, uh, we've kind of gotten this idea about doing what feels good. And he says, the unrestrained hedonism of our day comes historically from the 18th century idealization of happiness and it's filtered down through the centuries. And it's this whole idea of wanting to be happy. Now, I don't think wanting to be happy is a wrong thing. By the way, I think Jesus talks about it. He says, blessed are you when you, you know, mourn, for you shall be comforted. That word blessed is happy. He's basically saying the road to happiness may look a little different than what we think. Our road to happiness is no hassles, no problems. We have money, we got good health, we got great relationships. What we want is circumstantial happiness. But unfortunately in life, that's not what happens. Most of us can honestly say we can look back over the journey of life and say we've had lots of troubles in this life. As a matter of fact, Jesus said you will have trouble in this world because there's evil in this world. It trips us up. It trips us up from within. It trips us up from outside. And we're struggling with the evil around us. And so happiness sometimes seems to elude us. And yet Jesus talks about the true pursuit of what's really going to make us happy, and that's getting to know God getting to know who he is and begin to walk with him. Finally, uh, Willard goes on to say, it emerged in the form of our present feel-good society, tragically pandering to the popular culture as much as to popular religion. And I think that that's true. You know, a lot of what we're hearing today is really designed to make us feel good about ourselves. You know, we, we want to be told that we're nice. We want to be told we're good. <laughs> we don't want to be told we've got a problem. We don't want to be told that maybe we've got to address something in our lives or maybe we've got to make some changes in our lives. We don't really like being told those things. We're easily offended. We're kind of prickly today. We don't want any of that kind of stuff. It creates unrest inside of us. You know, he goes on to think, isn't it... Uh, the most generally applied standard of success, even for religious services, whether or not I felt what I felt about it. Did I feel good about it? Do I feel good? You know, I leaving feeling better. Well, hopefully we do feel better, but that's because maybe we've done some hard work. You know, sometimes to really ultimately feel better, initially we might not feel so good. 
How many know that if you go to a doctor and you got a problem and he's starting to address it, you may feel worse before he's done with you. I mean, especially if he does surgery on you. It may really feel bad for a while, but then ultimately you start to feel better because you're addressing the problem that brought you to the doctor in the first place. And that is even true with our, our emotional well-being. We can go to a counselor, we can work through things, or we can come to a church and we hear some things in our lives that are not quite right. And maybe at first we feel bad. Maybe we feel convicted. We feel, oh, I, you know, I've got to address that. But when we do the right things and we address the issues, eventually we feel better about it because we're dealing with the problems. And we're not just pretending they're going to slowly disappear. You know, we'd like to just think they'll all disappear, but it doesn't quite work that way. He goes on to say that our communities and our churches are thickly populated with people who've become neurotic and are paralyzed by their devotion and willing bondage to how they feel. So he says feelings are really driving a lot of our decision making. I think he's right about that. He said drug dependency and addiction is an epidemic because of the cultural imperative to feel good. In other words, we just start self-medicating. And I think we've seen a lot of that in our cultural uh, expression today. People want to feel better. They want to address the pain. And I'm just saying that maybe the right way of doing it is a biblical approach. And I think it has lasting, eternal consequences. Now we're in the Apostle Peter. He's writing a pastoral letter, and he's talking about what happens when we have people tell us what we want to hear, but not necessarily what we need to hear. He's going to talk about false teachers. He's going to talk about uh, a distortion of the gospel. And I believe that the greatest threat uh, in the church today is not coming from the outside. It's coming from within. It's coming from what we think and what we speak and what we believe. Peter, uh, uh, Michael Green, uh, sorry, uh, what is insightful is what Peter's going to give us. He's going to give us some clues today what to look for in false teachers and false teaching. How many think we might want to know this stuff? So you might want to take a few notes here. This is going to help you. It's one thing to be deceived over a temporal matter, but it's quite another thing to be deceived over something as critical as where we'll spend eternity. If we don't get this right, this could have huge ramifications, not just momentarily, but for all of eternity. So that's why I think this is an important message. Michael Green says regarding the passage we're looking at, he says such strident condemnation as Peter appears to 20th century, I could even add 21st century readers, as old-fashioned, it's gonna sound a little old-fashioned, a little inappropriate, because we've largely lost any sense of the diabolical danger of false teaching and have become as dull to distinctions between truth and falsehood in ideas as we have between the distinction between right and wrong in behavior. I think people today are confused. I think people today are confused about what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. Uh, I think people are confused with ideas in their minds. They, they, they can't seem to sort out when something is intrinsically wrong. I've been amazed at... Uh, what people think is acceptable, not only in behavior, but in thought. And what you think is gonna affect your behavior. J.B. Meyer uh, summarizes the characteristics of false teachers. He says, their teaching is flattery, their ambitions are financial, their lives are dissolute. In other words, they're usually messed up, they're immoral, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And he said, their consciences are dulled and their aim is to deceive. Isn't that sad? So. I want to take a look today at three things that we need to consider that Peter's going to bring to our attention. And really the first one, I think, is the idea that false teachers are coming 
I would even argue, have always been around. And Peter kind of brings that out. And they come along to distort the message. Because think about what Christianity is. It's the action of God that's being communicated on behalf of humanity. So if you distort what God has done for us somehow, and you're distorting what's being communicated in some way, even though you might bring the message, just a little bit of uh, distilling and distorting of that message eventually leads you to a totally different end product. And that's the concern that Peter's going to give to us. So here's how he begins the letter. I read it to you in a more contemporary language. Let's just take a look here from the NIV. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people. Now he's pointing back to the history of the people of Israel. There's always been false prophets. But he says, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, He's saying that in a futuristic tense, but there's actually people that were false teachers among Peter. And Paul says the same thing. And Paul actually goes on to say that some of them will even arise among you. Jude even talks about you know, teachers coming from the outside. But we're going to see that Peter and Paul are going to say, no, there's even people arising from within. It's kind of a challenging thing. We've got to pay attention to this. Actually, Paul's last words to the elders in uh, the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus, when he was meeting with them, he said, some of you are coming in like salvage wolves. You're going to distort the truth and lead people astray. And I've always looked at that verse. I said, Paul, how could you just know that stuff and not just, you know, get so frustrated with, you know, here you have laid down your life for people and now they're going to be let off. How painful is that? He says, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Now, isn't that true when people, uh, you know, they go after, we're we're really into a personality cult in North America. I don't know if you know that. We have all these big name preachers, and a lot of them, they've just hit the turf. I mean, they have just fallen into sin, some of them. uh, You know, I'm not trying to be mean here, but, you know, it, it was, some of them made a lot of money. And then you find out their lives were totally shambles, and it just totally discredited the gospel. And a lot of people, you know, followed them, hung on every word, and after a while, they're just disillusioned with Christianity because of the bad, you know, life that came out of these people. That's so tragic. He says, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. I just put a little warning here. You know, uh, if you're just going, to, you know, there's some churches. I've been, I've been to churches on a Sunday, not our church. I've been, I've been around, not necessarily in our community, but when I was traveling. I've sat in churches and I just said, man, talk about Christianity, light, 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 light. Because maybe there was one or two verses quoted, then the whole time it was story after story after story, and people were just eating this stuff up. And I'm just going, wow, this is pretty light fare, you know? And some of them, they just make up stories. Like sometimes, you know, people over-sensationalize stuff, and people are just wowed by these stories, and they're not even true. He says here, they're going to exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Peter's going to bring us to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I like what R.C. Sproul says. He said, the most destructive threat to the people of God in the Old Testament was not the armies of the Philistines, the Syrians, or the Amalekites, but the false prophets within its own gates. Now, if you read the Bible, and I'm, I'm gathering most of you do, how many have kind of noticed something, especially the prophets? They're always warning the people. How many catch that? 
Do you notice they're warning people? And they're usually warning them of their bad behavior. And they're usually saying, listen, you guys are breaking your covenant with God. You're sinning against God. You're going after these idols. You know, you're committing. And because you've moved away from the true worship of God, no, but they'd argue, no, no, we haven't. We're still worshiping Yahweh. But remember, Elijah says, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. What happens is there's a syncretism that begins to happen. And sometimes in the Christian life, we do the same thing. We're busy worshiping mammon and trying to worship God. How many know it doesn't work? Jesus says you either pick one or the other. It's not going to happen. See, we gotta get challenged by these things. We need to hear this stuff because what happens then is we get deceived. Now, Jeremiah, I'm gonna quote him in a moment, but all of these prophets were warning and telling people, listen, if you don't get right with God, if you don't repent, how many know repentance is a key fundamental concept through the scriptures? I'm reading about it from Genesis. I could show I mean, I could probably just preach a whole sermon on repentance. Everybody preaches it, including Jesus. His first message is the kingdom of God is among you, repent and believe. First words, you gotta change your mind. John the Baptist came preparing the way of the Lord. What did he say? Get your life right with God. So repentance is a key fundamental idea in the scriptures. Now this is what Jeremiah says about his time. He's warning because the people had you know, forsaken God, basically, by doing their own thing. And he says this, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, you know, Jeremiah says, listen, judgment's coming. They're going, oh, no, no, come on, Jeremiah. It's not going to happen. God's not going to allow his temple to be destroyed. Don't put your, and you know, so Jeremiah's warning. Hey, don't listen to these guys. They're not telling you the truth. God's spoken to me, and he's warned me, judgment's coming. You know, the only way to avert judgment is by repenting. What do the people do? <laughs> they uh, beat up Jeremiah, threw him in the cistern. You know, they just didn't listen to him. And at the end, we know the story. The, you know, Babylonians come along and destroy the city. Kind of tragic. He says, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they're no, they have no shame at all, he says. They don't even know how to blush, so they fall among the fallen, and they will be brought down when they're punished, says the Lord. So we see here that one of the primary motivations for false teachings, as Jeremiah said, was greed. Uh, they were busy making a good living off of people's sins. You know, false teaching is a lot like yeast. You know, how many have ever baked bread? Anybody ever baked bread? I've tried it. Uh, I remember my grandmother baked it, my mother baked it, I've done it. And you know, nowadays we have fast-acting yeast, but back in the old days you didn't have it fast-acting. So you know, they would take hours for that yeast to actually work in the dough, remember that? And then it would slowly rise, and it would literally change the shape of that dough, didn't it? It certainly did. And I wanna say this, it doesn't take a lot of yeast to really distort the nature of the gospel. It just takes a little bit, and it totally changes the whole shape of it. And that's why this is so important. So uh, how, how can you and I detect false teaching? Because if it's out there, how do I know what it is? How do I recognize what's false? Well, the answer is get a good grasp of what's true. Step one. 
You and I have a responsibility as individual believers to become grounded, established, and rooted in biblical truth. As a matter of fact, Ephesians challenge us to mature and to grow up. And it's written this way that in Paul is saying, now listen, Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the work of service. Usually that's what, you know, pastors, we, we kind of emphasize that. In other words, one of our jobs is to equip you so that you can do ministry, that you find out how you fit in the body of Christ and grow and develop, and, and that's all important. So the body of Christ may be built up. So we all participate together. That's one aspect. Let me go to the next verse until we all reach unity in the faith. Well, that's another aspect. Now, how do you get to unity in the faith? You have to grow up, you have to mature. You have to become understanding of what Christianity really is. And we grow in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature. How many know maturity is the goal? Now, you know, when you have children, you want them to grow physically. You want them to grow emotionally. You want them to grow mentally. And you want them to grow spiritually. And that's what God wants. God wants the same thing, that we develop, mature, we grow. He says, now how do you know when you're mature? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What it really means is you know when you're mature is when you become more Christ-like. You're more Christ-like in your character. You're more Christ-like in your attitude. You're more Christ-like the way you treat people. You're more Christ-like in your comprehension of Scripture. You get it. You understand what's going on. Verse 14, now he's going to talk about what immaturity looks like. He says, then we will no longer be infants. That's a state of immaturity. He's contrasting it. Tossed back and forth by the winds and blown here and there by what? Every wind of teaching. And so there's so much teaching out there that, we, that when we're at a mature level, we can just listen to something and go, no, that's nuts. That's not correct. That's not biblical. There's a problem there. There's yeast in that stuff. I can tell that's going to bring destruction. It's going to distort people's understanding. It's going to move them away from their pure and sincere devotion to Christ. It's moving them off target. It's moving them more to become more worldly. It's moving them to become less concerned about living a holy life. It's going to move them so that they cannot even be anywhere. They don't look different than the people in society. How many know that as believers, you and I should look different than non-believers? You and I should think different than non-believers. We should be acting different than non-believers. We should be filled with hope instead of despair. We should be filled with joy instead of, you know, walking around going, I don't know what's going on. We're like deer in the headlamps. I mean, see, when we become more mature, things start changing. We see things. We have a hope. We can lift up our heads. Listen, when the world seems like be falling apart and everybody's in fear and trembling, you and I are lift, lifting up our heads and saying, hey, our redemption's drawing close. You see, all of a sudden, we're on a different frequency. Somebody says, you know, Pastor, what's wrong with the church today? I said, well, you know, it, you know, part of the problem is we have a physical aspect of church, but it's not the building, it's the people. But inside the church, you have wheat, true believers, and you have weeds. You have people that are, you know, they think they're believers, but they've never been regenerated by the Spirit of God. They're professing something, but they don't possess the life of Christ. They need to be transformed. They need to be regenerated. And then you have mature people, then you have immature people. Sometimes immature people do really crazy things. How many know when you're a child, you do childish things? Hopefully when you grow up, you stop doing them. Right? Of course. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, so they're now 
They're being tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. In other words, people are manipulating these immature people to think the wrong way and behave the wrong way. R.C. Sproul says, when truth is distorted or denied, or when the truth of God is replaced by the falsehood of heresy, it's inevitable and and necessarily leads, not simply to intellectual error, but to gross moral corruption. Take a look at the end result of a person's life. Take a look at the character. You know what sometimes we do? We get focused in on people's gifts. We've developed a personality cult in North America. We talk about this preacher or that preacher. You know something? They're just God's servants. There's no superstars. You know? Get that out of our heads. Some people are very charismatic. They're greatly gifted, but if, they're, if they lack maturity and their fruit is tainted and messed up, I don't want to hear that person. I want to make sure their lives correspond to what they're saying. I want congruency with a life. I'd rather hear, you know, there's, there's some marvelous preachers out there. You've never even heard of these guys, and they're phenomenal in their communication skills, but they're godly, and they're not promoting themselves. They're self-effacing. They're humble. You wouldn't even know about them. I have the privilege of knowing some of these guys. They're amazing. They're men of God. Peter now is exposing a threat that's very real in his hour. It's very real in ours. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm jumping up to the next chapter to point out what he's talking about. He said, above all, you need to understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own what? Their own evil desires. These guys are full of themselves, these people. They will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as if it has since the beginning of creation. Oh, wow, interesting. Can I just say something? There's moments of judgment that have come into our history and there's moments of judgment that are coming into our future. And everything doesn't just stay the same. You know, this idea of everything just kind of progresses the same. No, it's not gonna be like that. He says, but they deliberately forgot that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water and by these waters also the world of that, at that time was deluged and destroyed. In other words, it was a flood. You know, people try to deny the flood. Some people have even tried to minimize it as a local flood. Listen, this was a worldwide catastrophe. That's what Peter's trying to tell us. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are 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 reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So what is Peter saying? This idea of judgment is not an archaic concept. And though I, I, you know, it's really rare today that you talk about judgment, you know, because that might offend people. Folks, judgment is one of the fundamental doctrines of the person of Jesus Christ. Read Hebrews chapter six, verse two. He's talking about it and eternal judgment. God's gonna judge all evil. That's what the book of Revelation is about, that Jesus is gonna deal with all the evil and the results of evil in our world. He's gonna destroy you know, Satan. He's gonna destroy his kingdom. We get so locked in as if this is everything. No. We're gonna have, you know, basically sin is gonna be dealt with. And people who embrace sin and refuse to repent and refuse to turn to God, they're gonna be judged. That's the biblical teaching. And we need to hear that today and remind ourselves of it because it's important that we get it. 
The second thing we need to understand that alert us to these false teachers is that their judgment, their judgment is assured. You can't deceive people and expect not to be punished by God. Some people may wonder, why does God allow false teaching? How many think that's a great question? If it's so bad, why does God tolerate it? You ever wondered that thought? Well, could it be that God even uses the evil things of this world to accomplish his will? I think sometimes he does. What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let me give you an idea how he uses false teaching or false prophets. Look at Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. It says, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, so look, this is actually happening. Here's people doing miracles. Okay? So don't dispute, you know, people can do miracles. And the prophet says, let's follow other gods, gods you've not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is what? He's testing you to find out whether you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul. God allows us to be tested on how we're going to respond to false teaching. It's a test. Are we going to pass? You know, verse 4. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. So we're going to be challenged. We have to understand this. We are going to be challenged. Do we really want to hear the truth? Or do we want to have people come and tell us what we'd rather hear? You see, that's really the test. Paul says this in in 2 Timothy, for the time will come when people will not put up a sound what? Doctrine. You go, what's doctrine, pastor? Teaching. You know, I don't like doctrine. It, it divides people. I don't like doctrine. I, I just want, you know, to feel this emotional blitz. Let me tell you something. I want to know exactly what's being said. I need to understand this doctrine. Instead, it says to suit their own desires, they're going to gather around them a great number of teachers. This is not a few. I'm going to shock you. In the Old Testament, there were more false prophets than true prophets. In every timeline, there's always been more that have spoken falsely than there have been those that have spoken truly. So if you say, well, the majority is on that side, Pastor, I'm going, that doesn't mean it's right. You know, they gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. Hmm. It's interesting that in chapter one, Peter's accused of perpetrating myths. Remember? Don't, you know, they, they were accusing Peter of cleverly, you know, creating clever myths. Peter goes, no, no, these aren't myths. I was an eyewitness. I saw what Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw Jesus crucified on the cross. I saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. I walked with the resurrected Jesus. This isn't a fabrication. This is reality, guys. But these guys are fabricating things. We can be assured that the wicked will be judged. Not only is their judgment foretold, but Peter now gives three examples from the Old Testament of God judging to let them know, hey, you don't think judgment's coming? How many know that we almost, I wouldn't say almost, we rarely hear of divine judgment anymore. You, you rarely hear that. It's not a popular message. You start preaching this kind of stuff, they'll say, oh, you're just a hell and fire and brimstone preacher. Well, that's where they get it from, this chapter. 
I mean, if you start preaching the Bible, it's going to sound pretty intense at times. And Peter's certainly doing that here. Michael Green says, Peter concentrates on the pride and rebellion of the angels and the disobedience of the men of Noah's day and their apathy and the sheer sensuality and I would even say the indifference of the people of Sodom. Presumably because these were all characteristics of the false teachers he was opposing. What is interesting in the warning is we're going to see there's a little insert throughout this chapter. Not only is God going to judge the wicked, but God's going to save the righteous. A warning and a hope. You and I can embrace the hope. You go, I'm going to walk with God. He's going to take me through this season of difficulty. He's going to take me through this season of trial. He's going to take me through this season of, of a judgment that's happening. Well, let's take a look. Uh, Thomas Schreiner points out, Peter's argument is now being based on past actions. He said, God's future judgment of the wicked is certain because God has consistently judged the wicked throughout history. The first example of God's judgment is on the rebellious angels. It's interesting that the book of Jude and the book of 2 Peter, there's a track that goes down the same. They're basically arguing the same thing. Peter says it this way, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned but sent them to hell, that word hell there, uh, usually there's the word Gehenna. This time it's not that Greek word, it's a different one. It's really the idea of restraining them and putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. That's the idea and Peter says that. And if he, uh, okay, Jude says it this way, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. What's the great day? Anytime you hear the great day of the Lord, that's a day of judgment. I don't know if you realize that. That's, that should cue you in. God's going to judge. That's what he's talking about here. Now, if you're a righteous person, the great day is a day of vindication. If you're a wicked person, it's a day of judgment. We need to understand it. He goes on in the second example that Peter uses is a story of Noah and the flood. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, a preacher of righteous, righteousness and seven others. So then the next example is, you know, here's, here's Noah. What's he doing? He's building an ark. Who told him to do that? God did. Why did God tell him to do it? He's going to judge the world. Don't you think people came out to see what Noah was doing? He was spent 100 years building this boat. People probably asked him about it. He maybe even had a few of those guys working for him. I don't know. What are you doing, Noah? I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? God's going to judge the world. Why is God going to judge the world? Because we're sinning against God. We need to repent. And listen, when it starts to rain, you know, you'll want to be inside the ark. This is a place of safety. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You know what we're doing now in the New Testament? We're building the church. The church is the New Testament ark. And we're calling people to Christ. And we're telling people, come, come to Christ. Be a part of the, the church of the living God. Be inside of her. So when the judgment comes, you're going to be rescued. Isn't that a great message? Isn't that a message of hope? But you know what's happened? We've lost a sense that divine judgment is coming. We, we, we you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess this to you. I, I need a deeper sense of urgency in my own spirit regarding the soon coming of Christ and what's about to happen and befall our world. If you and I knew the great judgment that was gonna befall it, you and I would have a deeper sense of urgency to share the good news about Jesus and tell them, you need to be in the ark. 
See, our job isn't to make people become Christian. Our job is to warn them from the wrath of God to come. The judgment is coming, but God has given us a door of mercy. There's a, a place of refuge. We can, we can fly to the, to the feet of the cross. We can receive forgiveness from Christ. We can find everlasting life. We can be vindicated on the day of judgment instead of destroyed. Thomas Schreiner says the completeness of the destruction also prefigures the final judgment. Only Noah and his family were left. The rest of the world was swept away. The future judgment does not only consist of the condemnation of the wicked, but it will also involve the vindication of the righteous, whom God is able to preserve in the midst of difficulties. The third example he uses is the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 6, it says, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. How many can see there's a contrast being portrayed throughout this chapter? Peter's saying, look, you know, there's judgment coming, but there's a rescue to the righteous. The righteous will be spared. There's an appeal. Be righteous. Live this holy life. So Michael Green summarizes the point. This total destruction was allowed by God in order to bring home to succeeding generations. That means us later on. The unrighteousness will end in ruin. False teaching, which always leads to ungodly behavior, ultimately produces suffering and disaster. If it's Lot's day, Peter's day, or our day, all the same. It's a warning. Third characteristic is the distinguishing elements. Like, who are these people? What determines somebody's a false teacher? How many would like to know? What are the marks of a false teacher? Peter kind of gives us to them, gives us those characteristics here in this chapter. First of all, they're motivated by greed, and they're liars. They're constantly making things up. That, I think that's one of the reasons why I don't get too caught up with everything that's sensational. You know, a lot of times God works through the ordinary and the mundane. Now, he does once in a while work through sensational things, but I've been a Christian a long time. I've seen, you know, those seem to, that's kind of the extraordinary moments. Generally, in the Christian life, a lot of ordinary moments. Anybody figured that out yet? Yeah, most of it's ordinary or seeming to be. It says here, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Number two, they despise authority and do their own thing. Nobody can speak the truth into their life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said, he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon no longer be listening to God either. Isn't that interesting? You know, I think that's powerful. You know, a lot of times people come up to me and, I, and I, it just, I'll just tell you, one of the things that it's not gonna fly with me is when you play the God card. You go, what's the God card, pastor? God told me. You know, I feel God's telling me. Well, I, if you tell me, I feel God's telling me, I can focus on the feeling part. But if you just tell me straight out, God told me, what can I argue? God's told you, what are you doing? Just go do it. But you know what the problem is? That's a very unwise way of stating things. I really believe it's more wise for us to come to our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, look, I think this is what we should be doing. I think God's directing us in this 
area? What do you guys think? And so we're, we're actually living in community, sharing with each other that are experienced and mature before we make major decisions. A lot of people today are making decisions based on emotion, and they think it's God, and it's not. It's gotta be based on biblical understanding. It's gotta be based on something that's not just subjective, but something that's objective, like the scriptures. Michael Green says they're contemptuous of other people. Be, the, be these human or divine, they're self-will, they're sensual. For in the last analysis, self is all that matters to them. He goes on to say his hell is this, that his world contracts until the only thing left is the self. He has, he, he has corrupted. And who can say that Second Peter is irrelevant to our generation? What's he saying? I'm, I'll just, I'm gonna summarize it for you real quickly. If you're living for yourself, it's a small world you're gonna live in. If you wanna really expand the horizons of your soul, start moving beyond yourself and you'll start growing as a person. How's that? I think that's a word of wisdom. They're never satisfied, oh sorry, three. Uh, they slander others and they blaspheme what they don't understand. It says, but these people blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed and like beasts, they too will perish. Michael Green says, their mistake is to confuse the thrill of animal instinct with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's very likely that these advocates of Christian liberty were loud in their claiming to be full of the Spirit. But he said, they're not full of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, he goes on, the heretics claim to have knowledge. All heretics claim to have knowledge. And they all claim to have the Spirit who gave them liberty. And they usually regard the people who are believers as, you guys just don't know the Spirit. You're not walking in the spirit. You're getting accused of that. On the contrary, Peter seems to say the spirit manifests his presence not but ecstatic thrills. You know, in other words, I'm, I'm being, you know, I feel emotion. But, and insubordinate action, but through moral renewal. In other words, when the Holy Spirit's really working, it changes us. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, Peter, like the rest of the New Testament writers, emphasized that Christianity is inescapably ethical. You cannot have a relationship with a good God without becoming a good person. How is that? That's what should be happening. And if you and I are not becoming more like Christ, we have to take a hard look at ourselves and say, am I really, am I getting it? Is God's spirit really at work in my life? Because that's, that's the goal of the spirit of God is gonna move you to become Christ-like. They're never satisfied it says here, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. They're just an accursed brood. Well, that's pretty nasty language. Peter's pretty tough on these guys, but he's saying, you know what the problem is? These guys are only motivated out of what they get out of it. And they're, they're actually dominated and mastered by their own sin. And people who are unstable, they actually are able to seduce those people. So he's warning us, be careful. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam. This is really the story from the Old Testament found in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. Peter says, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast, without speech who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You see, these false teachers have an inordinate desire for money, control, and power. They're they're, it's, it's all about something that's inside of them. It's their appetite that they're feeding. They promise something they don't personally possess. Verse 17, these people are springs without water. See, they're promising water, they're promising life, but they don't have it. 
He says they're mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. They, they actually mouth uh, empty and boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. For some reason, I'm frozen here, guys. Number seven, they appeal to the lustful desires of the sinful nature. That's how they entice people. They actually promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved. Look at verse 19. They promise them freedom while they are themselves slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the, be- at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow, a sow that is that is washed, returns to her wallowing in the mud. Okay, we're getting back. Okay, now, these false teachers understood, no doubt, the liberation afforded by the cross of Christ. So here's, here's what you need to understand. It sounds like they're preaching the gospel, okay? It sounds like it. They know about it. But liberty is one of their war cries, according to Michael Green. They did not recognize the obligation of holy living imposed by the crucified. You know what I say about it? They're preaching a crown without a cross. They're preaching the fullness of life without dying to self. You follow what I'm saying? So when you hear sermons, if, if you're hearing sermons by someone and they're preaching you know, the fullness of the Christian life but they never talk about laying down your life, they don't talk about denying themselves. I'm not talking about that side of the Christian life. Then they're, they're only talking about the one side. That's usually the nature of a false prophet. They're not giving you the full story. And that's the, what we need to hear because it is the full story we need to hear. You know, Paul talked about the power of Christ's resurrection, but he also talked about fellowshipping with Christ in his sufferings. If you never hear them talk about fellowshipping with Christ in his sufferings, you're probably listening to a false pre- a preacher because that's part of the gospel. And we need to hear the whole thing. All it takes is just, you know, to get out of balance, all you got to do is just stick on one side of the equation and never talk about the other side. And pretty soon you're out of, out of whack. And it's pretty intense. Now, he goes on to say this, the man who attempts to serve God and self is on the high road to swift destruction. For either death or Christ will, coming will cut him off in mid-course. What's he saying? He's saying you can't serve yourself in Christ. You can't serve God and mammon, you know, You have to make a choice. Why was Peter attacking the false teachers with such vehemence? Why why was he after them? How many get a little sense that Peter's really nailing these guys? Anybody get that sense? How many say, this is a pretty intense chapter. I'm reading this, I'm going, whoa, this is really intense. Anybody else pick that up? It's in the Bible, folks. I'm, I'm just reading what's there. So why would Peter do that? Well, I like what Michael Green says, because he's primarily a pastor. He's concerned to feed his sheep, his master's sheep, and he's furious to find them being poisoned by lust, masquerading as religion. Well, that's a powerful statement. You know, he's upset about that. It's quite a sober warning. And then he closes with those two analogies. 
They're like a dog that's been cleansed, you know. But from within, but you know what happens? He eats his food, and then he comes back and he eats his vomit. What's he saying? He's saying outwardly they look like they're doing the right thing, but you know what? There's a perverse nature inside of them. They go back and do that kind of stuff. Or like a pig that's been outwardly washed, but as soon as you clean him up, he goes back to the mud. There's just something inside of him. You see, the inside hasn't been changed. That's what he's getting across here. How many know Judas Iscariot appeared to be one of Jesus' disciples? But was he? I don't think so. Jesus said he was a devil. We have a devil among us. Isn't that interesting? What, what, was, what was the nature of Judas? What was he doing? He was the treasurer and he was stealing from the bag. He was motivated by greed and for that greed he actually betrayed Jesus. How many go, that's pretty powerful. So here's a man who followed Jesus, saw the miracles, listened to the teaching of Jesus, but he himself was a reprobate. Is that a shocking statement? That should, shake, that should shake us up and go, wow, Lord, it says examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. You know, a lot of times we can hear a message like this and start looking outward and going, I wonder who the false teachers are. But rather than just do that, well, I think we need to do that. I think we need to know, hey, I don't want to just be listening to everybody. I want to make sure I'm hearing the full gospel, the full presentation, right? But the question I have to ask myself and the question I'm going to ask you is, what motivates you? What motivates me? Do we struggle with those issues that the false teachers struggled with? Lying, greed, lack of accountability. You know, if we are being mastered by sin, we're in trouble. You know, both Peter and Paul warned us, either through the grace of God, we master sin in our lives, or sin will master and destroy us. And I can go all the way back to the first book, Cain and Abel. God said to Cain, you know, he was angry. God didn't accept his sacrifice, remember that? Didn't accept him. He goes, what's wrong? He said, listen Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You need to master it or it will master you. And I'm gonna have a stand as we close the service. So I've said a lot today. A lot of things were said. This is a big chapter, and I said a lot of things in this chapter. But as we come to the close of the chapter, it's very important that we mature. How many heard that? It's very important what we hear and the doctrine that we're listening to. It's very important that we become discerning and say, are they preaching the whole gospel or just the part that's good do you know as a pastor, I love preaching sermons that tell us how great God is or how wonderful God is to us. Those parts I love. A little more challenging to say, oh, by the way, don't behave like this. This is detrimental. But you know what? If you love people, you don't just tell people what they want to hear all the time. You have to tell people what they need to hear. When you're a parent, you don't just tell your kids, oh, you're a great kid, you never do anything wrong. No, sometimes you gotta say, hey, that behavior there, if it's continued, will do a lot of damage to you and to other people. Don't do that. I'm warning you, it'll hurt you. Right? Good parent does that, I think so. So we need to hear that. Maybe there's something in your life right now, maybe you're sitting down here and saying, wow, you know what, pastor? I think I've not been very discerning Maybe that's you. I've been very undiscerning in who I'm listening to. 
I'm going to say this. There's so much information out there right now that a lot of it isn't even true. And sometimes we embrace ideas and then we run with them as if they're the truth. And it leads to diminishing our own lives. Number one. This could be true in many areas in our life. Number two. Maybe there's things in your own life. Take a look at the fruit of the Spirit. Not just the gift, the fruit. And just say to yourself, am I full of joy? Am I full of peace? If I have self-control, or, or are there things in my life, you know, I'm full of anger, rage, malice, you know, I'm, I'm upset all the time, I've got no peace in my life. Hey, you know what, where does that come from? It comes from below. That's a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is not working in your life at the same level it should. And the enemy is trying to, you know, defeat you in that area in your life. You need to say, I need to master this area in my life. I could go down and start listing sins. I could talk about gossip, talk about division. I could talk about lust. I could talk about greed. I could talk about lying. We could just go down a whole list of things and start checking them off. If there's an area that's mastering us, we need to say, Lord, I need your help today. I need to surrender to you. Maybe I need to watch what I'm saying. You know, I'm creating conflict with people. I'm creating division with people. I don't know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. And today God's telling us, hey, not all things go. The gospel is a call to repentance that leads to a godly life. You know what I see in North America today? A lack of godliness, a lack of holiness, and a lack of fear of God. And that tells me somehow we're not hearing the full message. Does that make sense to you? Because if we're hearing the full message, I think it would be leading to these other things. And that's been my prayer for us as a congregation, that you and I would have an encounter with the true and the living God that would so impact us that we would see ourselves. We'd stop looking around and pointing our finger at everybody else and say, Lord, woe is me. I'm a person that needs to be cleansed by you. And then when the Lord says, I really need you to go out and warn people, you know, there's a judgment coming. You're saying, here, my Lord, send me. I want to bring as many people into the ark before judgment comes as possible. So with every head bowed right now, the Spirit of God is speaking. I think there's a word of encouragement today. If you're doing what's right, God says, I'll spare you judgment. Thank you, Lord. But maybe there's things in our lives, even as believers, we're saying, this has got to go. And the Spirit of God is talking to you right now about something in your life. That's you. Just raise your hand real quick. I'm going to pray right now. God's speaking. I want, I want you to master this. I want you to master this or it's going to master you. It could be unforgiveness. A lot of tricky things, isn't there? Father, I thank you today that you want us to understand the full scope of your word. And I pray today, Father, that you will grip us and give us a new sense of urgency in our own souls, towards the issues in our own lives. And Lord, to have a deep concern for people around us. Lord, help us to see that this world is moving towards the day of the Lord, when judgment will come. And I pray, Father, that we will be able to stand in the tradition of the prophets and the apostles and the faithful servants of, of a bygone era that were faithful in carrying the good news of Jesus so that people could hear the message of forgiveness and grace and be redeemed. Help us, Lord, in that tradition. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.